Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is an extra, extra special episode. It's the 41st edition of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into the unique lives and journeys you may find quite unexpected. And we'll discuss ways to inspire and enact social change that level the playing field and help everyone live to their full potential. And this show wraps my four-year journey with Voice America. And who'd have thought someone who didn't speak English until age five was painfully shy and super unskillful, would be a podcast host and power communicator. Heartfelt thanks to my executive producer, Randall Libero, the all-star team at Voice America, and all my listeners around the world for the opportunity to help people authentically say what needs to be said. And I've been humbled by my many amazing guests who share generously taken us behind the scenes on what's been hard in life and shown us it is possible to succeed on your terms. And I'm especially honored to be sitting here with a distinguished lawyer who's widely considered to be the architect of the movement that led to same-sex marriage being legalized in the United States. He began fighting for marriage equality as early as the 1980s, including an appearance before the Supreme Court, publishing a book on why marriage matters, and eventually founding and leading Freedom to Marry, the campaign that won marriage for same-sex couples nationwide. It is my pleasure to welcome a leader of change, Evan Wolfson. Evan, welcome to Our Voices. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it is a super pleasure. Shout out to Community Solutions, which is on uh, committed to eliminating chronic and veteran homelessness, which is how I first crossed paths with you. Um, your 30 plus year battle to win marriage is nothing short of inspiring. Before we go there, I am really keen for listeners, Evan, just to get to know you and to appreciate a bit about what's made you, you. So take us through how a kid from Pittsburgh became one of the biggest champions in the world for social change. Well, I was very lucky. I was born into and always had and still have a very loving and supportive family. My parents put the kids first and taught us to love one another and to be there for each other. And even though both my parents are now gone, the siblings are still very tight. We still have our weekly post-pandemic Zoom calls now, and we visit and are with each other. So I always had the support and love of my family at a time, uh, even at a time where many other kids worry about losing that support or having to fear the consequences of potentially coming out and uh, losing the very thing we all should be able to count on. So I consider myself very lucky, uh, first first of all, in that regard. Secondly, I grew up in a fun and supportive and good environment. I was born in New York, actually, and my parents later uh, moved us to Pittsburgh, where my father was a doctor and my mother was first a homemaker raising kids and then went on to get her social work degree. And we lived in a terrific community where kids could ride their bikes and go go visit one another and have independence and so on. And the schools were good and all that. So again, very, very lucky to have just this great foundation in life that obviously not everyone has. And uh, in that community, 
it was a predominantly Jewish community called Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh. Uh, I actually went to and was bar mitzvahed at the Tree of Life Synagogue, the synagogue that much later, of course, was the site, site of one of the terrible mass shootings we have all too often in our country. Um, to see that actually taking place at my own family synagogue uh, on TV. And so it was, you know, horrifying as all these shootings are. Um, but that represented just how the response the community had to the shooting was reflective of the strong community feeling and the strong community values that were imparted to me even as I was growing up and so on. I actually just sent a check in to go to my 50th high school reunion next year, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so one big part of your answer is I was just very lucky that from an early age, I had love and support and uh, the instilling of the vision that I could do great things and I could do whatever I want and I could go out and make a difference in the world and I'm I'm good and all of that kind of stuff. Now, of course, I had all the insecurities and worries and internal ups and downs that, you know, any person has, as I find when I reread my diary uh, uh, occasionally, and I'm kind of surprised that uh, the, a period I look at as, oh, this was easy, or here's here's how I made that decision, or here's what happened, and then I go back and I see the, you know, the the usual human self questioning and so on and so on. So I had all of that too, but it, but in the big picture, I was just very lucky and had all of that, and so I never had any doubt in my mind that I was going to try to make a difference in the world, that I was going to go off and do big things. I was the kind of kid that did not like sports particularly, but could name, you know, at age 10 or 11 or 12, all 100 senators. And I followed politics in the way that most kids maybe follow sports or other activities and was always fascinated by politics, by history, by biography, and by wanting to make a difference. I read voraciously, still do, and um, loved history and always saw myself as wanting to contribute to making a difference. And had that self-confidence and was given the luck of that confidence to believe that I could make a difference in life. So I had that really from a very early age, you know, went around the neighborhood canvassing for votes for Lyndon Johnson when I was, I think I was seven at the time and uh, uh, wrote uh, poetry about the Vietnam war and about politics, et cetera, you know, at age eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, still have those little, uh, notebooks and so on um and wanted to make a difference i was involved in student un i was involved in other kinds of student political type stuff and set my eyes on going to college of course and i really wanted to go to a you know really good school i aimed very high landed well and uh then began the next chapter of my life you know out of my parents nest and out of pittsburgh Let's we'll pause here. So I'm just I'm just the folks could see you. I wish they could like the just the energy. But your your sibling, how many siblings? And just talk about the dynamics. And I'm, you know, your parents obviously did a lot of right things to nurture this. So maybe just some comments on what you took from each of them. Mm -hmm. uh, well, my parents were real role models. First of all, of love and a loving marriage and a commitment to family. They uh, celebrated 
together 60 plus years of marriage before my dad died. And then a few years later, my mother died. Um, you know, there were ups and downs in our family, just as in any, but uh, we had that vision always in front of us. They, as I said, they always taught us to put the kids for, you know, put, put the kid, they put the kids first and they always taught us to have uh, a, a commitment and appreciation for our siblings. I mean, I remember one conversation specifically with my mom, you know, when I was again, 10, 11, 12, I don't know how old, where she said, dad and I will always have each other, but you kids have to have each other and so on. And that always really stuck with me. And in one version or another, stuck with all the other siblings. And, you know, we're very different in many ways and we can push each other's buttons and get on each other's nerves, but we're very, very interconnected and certainly have none, none of us has any doubt that the others would always be there for each other. You know, uh, one family joke is that if our family had a T, it would be constant comment because everybody's talking and everybody has an opinion and everybody knows about everybody and da, 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 even though we live in different cities and so on. So I'm the oldest of four. Mm. Shortly after me comes my sister. Then a few years later, one brother and then another brother. Mm. The, the, the first of those brothers, the, you know, the quote unquote middle brother uh, is the one we always joked about as being quote, the normal one in the family. He was the Marilyn Munster of the family. He was the one who, as it as it turned out, um, took over my dad's medical practice, you know, went to medical school, became the doctor. He was the first one to marry, the first one to have kids. He took over the home that we grew up in. So the family home is still in our family. And he raised his kids, my niece and nephews, and and he and his wife still host the family gatherings for Thanksgiving or Passover or what have you. Um and uh, that helps also keep us all close now to the next generation as well. And then my youngest brother is, you know, very colorful and exuberant and creative and similar to me in some respects. He he also lives in New York. The two others live in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. um, and and yet with his own particular personality and uh, differences from me too. I'm a typical older child, oldest child in some ways. Um, but again, we all communicate, we're all very close and we've all taken a lot from each other. Yeah. That is such a gift. Okay. This, um, going into the upper echelons of university, your time at Yale, just talk to me about what that felt like. Did you, did you feel like you, did you feel like you fit in? I mean, your spirit of just changing the world where you feel like here I am and everyone's with me or, people aren't with me? Well, I wouldn't say everyone's with me. I mean, I definitely felt like I fit in. Um, I, I, from day one, began meeting people who remain my close circle of friends to this day. Uh, literally, the first person I met was one of my college roommates. And our roommate circle remains very, very close to this day. We, we, together with spouses and partners and now children and grandchildren, vacation together, visit each other, hold roommate reunions during much of the pandemic. And still spottily now we have the weekly Zoom calls and so on. So I found a friend circle pretty quickly. It became a very intense and important part of my life. We're like family to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that sense, absolutely felt like I fit in. I, I love going to classes. I love the courses. I love the ambiance, et cetera. What, what, what was more of a challenge, although I didn't experience it as a debilitating challenge, but it was definitely something I began to have to wrestle with was being gay and knowing that I am gay and knowing then that I was gay, 
but not having an idea, stupid as this may sound, what to do about it. So I kind of, unfortunately, in retrospect, did not come out in college. Um, I was aware in college. I did a little exploring and looking around in college, but I really just sort of was waiting for something to happen, something to come to me. And it's it's a little bit anomalous when you think about my personality and my approach to other things in life and also to obviously what I wound up doing. But that was the reality. It, it wasn't until after college that I actually, or really at the very, very end of college, that I first began coming out to anyone. And then after college, when I went into the Peace Corps, that's when I actually began taking action and uh, really living up to being gay and came back from the Peace Corps two years later with the realization that this is who I am, this is what I want, and I have to figure out how to build a life, which is what I spent much of law school doing as opposed to going to the library. How, um, so this part in going back with your family. So one of the things we were family is like, oh, we knew all along before. I'm, I'm really curious how that internal, you know, how you manage that and stay whole, you know, because that's a lot. It was a lot. And I actually kind of would have thought my parents would have known. And when I eventually arranged to tell them and come, you know, and I did like a formal mom and dad, I'm coming home. There's something I want to talk with you about. Took them into the family room, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, planned it all in advance, et cetera. I was a little surprised that they did not know. And we had to have that conversation and walk them through it. I never, you know, as I've said, I had any doubt that they would love me. I wasn't afraid they would reject me, but I had to deal with their, you know, understandable surprise and being sad, having lost their vision of what my life was going to be like. They they then needed time to work it out and to figure out that it wasn't the end of everything, even if it did change what they had expected. Um, and I had similar conversations then with my siblings, all of whom took it much easier and didn't have the same high degree of expectation. Although I don't think any of them quote knew uh, before I told them. Interesting. So, that sure. is interesting. Given how close you all are, because I remember um, a former boyfriend of mine yeah, had a FedEx came to his door. He goes, oh, this is my brother's coming out letter. He just, uh, he just knew that finally his, his brother had processed it. Um, so the uh, the law school, was that, you knew you were going to become a lawyer? Just I'm curious how you shaped your career. Well, I was the kind of kid who everybody always said, oh, you sh you'll be, you should be a lawyer, you know, very verbal, like to talk, give speeches, <laughs> argue. They will always talk about how I pointed my finger, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that was always kind of the plan. And for me, though, it wasn't so much that I wanted to be a lawyer, though I, I did enjoy watching and reading about law and law lawyers and you know law TV shows and stuff like that. But to me, law was a route to politics. It was a route to being involved in politics and government and you know in the shaping of history. So it wasn't so much that I dreamed of being a lawyer per se, but I took it for granted that I was going to become a lawyer in order to get into public service or politics or, or uh, some kind of involvement like that. Yeah. Uh, for those of, and I took one international law class in business school and it, I, I just can't, I can't read that much and literally stay awake. It's literally a problem for me. Just humor me. What do you, what are some of the attributes of, of, a, of making a great lawyer in, in the field that you're in? Well, I think it's really important for people to understand that being a lawyer 
first of all, I don't think of being a lawyer as necessarily that's what you are. I think of it as something you do. So it's a, so to me, it's a set of tools, a set of skills, and a set of credentials that allow you to engage, to speak, to participate, and people give you the birth to bring forward your 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 views, your ideas, your research, your facts, your analysis, and so on. And you learn how to, uh, if you're if you're if you've done it right, you learn how to hone research, how to hone facts, how to hone analysis, how to hold pers hone persuasion skills, and so on. And that's that's what being a lawyer really is. And and the point of that is that it can be devoted to many different ends in many different ways. You know, when we think of lawyers, we tend to think of either going to court, you know, litigators, or we think of them doing deals or, you know, counseling people and so on. And all of those are very, very important and different sets of skills and tasks that lawyers can do. But you can also combine them in a whole variety of ways. And for example, you just in your question said, you know, talk about what makes a good lawyer in your field. Well, you know, what is my field? Actually, even though I am a lawyer, and have the credential and have litigated and have lawyered in all the quote classic ways, really what I mostly do and what I'm mostly known for is organizing, you know, leading a campaign, building an organization, mm -hmm. developing, getting buy-in, uh, preaching, coaching, persuading, et cetera. Those are all things lawyers can do. And I think being a lawyer often helped me to do them, but is that actually a field of lawyering, you know? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes, it is, but it's not what people would typically think. So the number one thing I would say is that being a lawyer doesn't tell you what exactly you're going to do, but it does describe the kinds of tools and um, approaches and assets you can bring to bear to what you want to do. Yeah. Thank I mean, you. I, re I remember the moment in law school when I kind of said to a classmate, you know, we we're studying these cases as if you do this and you do this and you argue this and you argue this and then the judges do that. And I said, I, don't, I actually don't think this is really how it works. I think you have to get the judges to want to do what you want them to do. And then you show them the roadmap. Then you give them the cases, the analysis, the research in order to help them be able to do it. But you have to first make them want to do it. And the making them want to do it is actually part of lawyering also, but it's not what people think of when they think of lawyering. Yeah, that's incredibly insightful. And thanks for like deconstructing that for us. In your law school and continued journey, I'm curious, what was hard for you? And I mean, was it just naturally you're just good at it all? I'm just wondering what you had to really work at um, and and maybe aspects of the law that you really struggled with. Um, I think in lawyer, I probably had to st struggle with or at least work hard at or or didn't particularly enjoy some of the important detail work that comes with being at least a, you know, a certain kind of lawyer and doing certain kind of lawyering. I could get bored reading a bunch of cases or so on, you know, not always, but sometimes um, I, I, I could find some interest in the concatenation of rules that one had to learn, but after a while I didn't care. So it, I kind of had to care about the thing in order to care about it, in order to be able to be good at it. And that's part of why I also chose pretty early on not to be the quote, typical kind of lawyer. I mean, it was partly that, partly also that even though, you know, making money is a good thing and having money is, you know, good. Uh, that was never what motivated me. So I, I never wanted to devote my time and energy to working for clients or causes 
or in a business in a, in a workplace that was primarily about other people's money and then making money off of the other people's money. Not that there's anything wrong with that generally, but it just, it wasn't at all what motivated me. What motivated me much more was people and making a difference. So I, even though I could do some of those things and did some of those courses and did have summer law jobs, et cetera, et cetera, I pretty early on decided that was not the route I was going to take. And then I had to figure out what was the route I was going to take, you know, how was I going to get to be able to do the kinds of things that really did motivate me while also learning to be a better lawyer and then using my law credential and skill to uh, do the real job out there that I wanted to do. And so fortunately for me, I was approached during the recruiting season by um, the bureau chief, the appeals bureau chief of the Brooklyn district attorney's office, uh, the then Brooklyn district attorney prosecutor was Liz Holtzman, whom I had watched on TV as a kid when I was obsessed about the Watergate hearings. And she was the youngest woman in Congress and, and was on the committee. And so, you know, to me, she was a hero right from that. And she was now the Brooklyn DA. And uh, Barbara Underwood, her bureau chief, was the was in appeals and came to recruit and recruited me heavily. She persuaded me this would be a good job for me. I should come. They would want me to work under her in the appeals bureau. So I would sort of be taken out of the normal junior lawyer route and immediately put into writing briefs and doing things that mattered on something of public interest, et cetera, you know, being a prosecutor, serving the public, et cetera. And that really appealed to me. It also was a chance to get to New York, which also appealed to me. And so my dilemma about what to do when everybody else was interviewing at firms and trying to figure out which corporate X they were going to do, this came and a door opened for me. And of course, as it turned out, Liz Holtzman, as I said, was a public figure and a hero and, a, and an inspiration. And Barbara Underwood became the first woman Attorney General of the United States, uh, sorry, a first woman Attorney General of New York State, the first woman um, a Solicitor General of the United States. Uh, and so she her, she was also a luminary in, in her own right and, and became my first mentor. Uh, so from a, partly from knowing I wanted something and holding out until I got it, and partly by the luck of being available for the right thing to come to me, uh, a path opened up. And it's not like I'd always previously dreamed of being a prosecutor, but the idea of being a prosecutor and having the volume of going into court and having those skills and learning from the get-go how to do that in a cause that I considered worthwhile, public service, that would also theoretically be a foundation to something else, all clicked and all worked out for me. And so that's what came next after law school. But almost immediately after I'd moved to New York and started work, in the DA's office, I began volunteering during my weekends and nights at Lambda Legal, one of the very small in the organizations in the then very beleaguered and small gay rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to contact them and asked, could I, could I work for them? Could I volunteer for them and you know, write briefs and so on on the side? They, they were eager to get help because this was a terrible time. This was the AIDS epidemic. It was the Reagan administration. It was a very hostile, bleak time for gay people. Uh, so they were happy to have even a junior, young, know very little kind of volunteer. Um, and then I had to get permission from the DA's office. And so in order to do that, I had to go back and talk to first Barbara and then others who all 
picked this decision up all the way to the DA because apparently no assistant DA had ever before asked to do pro bono work, let alone controversial pro bono work. So the net effect was my coming out to the entire office and putting that out, out there and then being told, yes, I could do it. Yes, I could. So I wound up doing my day job as a prosecutor and my weekends and nights job as a volunteer attorney with this gay rights organization. And meanwhile, the DA said uh, to you know her team, if this guy wants to do all this sort of foofy constitutional stuff on the side, why don't we have him do some of that for us as well? So then I began getting assignments in the office, often working with Barbara, uh, on briefs that were going to the Supreme Court, that were going to the New York's highest court, and so on, even as a young junior attorney in the office. So it's a thing of luck and kind of doing the right thing and looking for what you want actually wound up working out extremely well for me. It, it, it brought me opportunities to make a difference, to be with Barbara at the Supreme Court and prevailed uh, to abolish race discrimination in jury selection, the Batson case. And we wrote a brief together in the New York High Court challenging what used to be called the marital rape exemption, which was the then prevalent doctrine that a man could not be prosecuted for raping his wife because he was entitled to take what, quote unquote, belonged to him. And we were able to overturn that. So I got to work on things like that, as well as, you know, quote, normal criminal prosecutions and so on, while volunteering on gay rights, including Supreme Court cases and circuit cases and so on, at the height of the AIDS epidemic uh, in the crisis of the gay rights movement. So it was a very intense and early legal education. Now, I should also say it also left tremendous gaps. I never really learned how to do a lot of, quote, ordinary things that a lawyer should do. <laughs> You know, I just was sort of jumped up above my level and did what I could do and got to do what I got to do and then went on to the next thing without filling in all the gaps along the way. I'm in awe of this. So so two questions. Just I don't want to gloss over that period of time and coming out at work. Right. I mean, that's so was there anxiety about that? How did you you know, you can feel like you're the only one and all of a sudden you want to do this crazy work. And oh, by the way, I'm gay. So just share with us, was that you just, you practice in the mirror? You, I mean, what was going through your own mind for that? Well, again, it was a little bit like with my parents. I, I had already come out to Barbara when she had entered, when Barbara Underwood had interviewed me uh, at, at law school at Harvard for the position, it was really kind of wooing me. I had said from the get-go, okay, but I will not prosecute consensual sex cases. Uh, I will, I won't do it. And, and I'm gay and I'm not going to do that. And she said, Oh, of course that's fine. And was perfectly you know, respectful and so on. And by the way, New York decriminalized uh, same sex acts in 1980. So I, I was the one that was a little like, Oh, <laughs> maybe I should have, <laughs> maybe I should have done a little research and known that. Um, so I had, I had, I wasn't afraid of how, my immediate supervisor was going to react. And I really wasn't afraid of how the DA herself was going to react. Having to come out at every level along the way was not something I had bargained for. I didn't particularly worry about it, but yeah. it was, you know, it was, it was something. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Now this, um, <laughs> were you, cause I, I just didn't see the energy you have. Did you just work all the time? Were you balancing work and life, Evan? Like just talk about your own personal life as you're coming through this incredible, you know, 
fire hose of opportunity. Well, it is funny. I mean, I certainly worked hard and was given given lots of great things to do, both in the office and as a volunteer, and worked on these prestigious cases, writing briefs, arguing, learning stuff, et cetera. And, uh, and yet I tend to think of myself as actually kind of lazy. I, I really don't, don't think that I worked hard by some other people's standards. I think I'm actually just, I'm very efficient in my work. I can sort of go right to what I need to know, what I need to do, what I need to say. I procrastinate and then can bang it out, you know? So, um, it's probably unfair to say I'm lazy, but I always think of myself as lazy, but it's probably also a little unfair to say I work hard uh, in the same way that maybe some other people do have to work hard. For me, it, 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 when, I'm, when I'm doing something I care about, I'm, I'm, I'm quite into it and quite good and quite able to bang it out. And I don't think of it as, I don't experience it as hard. I experience it as, you know, working. So yes, I, but yes, I spent a lot of time doing that kind of work, but I also made time for friends and theater and family and travel, uh, mm -hmm. as I always have and, and continue to. And as I certainly recommend to others, you know, no matter how important the work you're doing, no matter how vital you are, you're going to, you need to sustain yourself for the long haul, for the, the real work. You need to be in touch with your passions. You need to reconnect with what matters. You need to have the perspective that doing something else or talking to someone else or going somewhere else can give you. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So just take us through this, you know, this whole uh, you know, it, I know we can't encapsulate it in such a short amount of time, but just having, you know, we want to inspire folks. That, you know, every one of us matters and can be a huge positive force of change. Perhaps not quite the global scale of you, Evan, but I think your uh, willingness and passion and just commitment to go there is great. And so that that story of creating such positive change for others, you know, I think there's lots for us to learn. Well, I do think two things we sort of skipped over in my grand story. Uh, one is that when I was in law school, I wrote, we, we all had to write a third year paper, a thesis. And I chose to write mine on fighting for the freedom to marry, why we should have the freedom to marry. And as it turned out, of course, that paper was very important and set the stage for what became a 32 year battle for me. There'd already been decades and certainly years of battle before me, but my, my, I came into that story in 1983 when I wrote this thesis and spent the next 32 years, one way or another, fighting to win marriage and laying out the strategy and calling for action and talking about the values and so on. But when I wrote that paper, I certainly had no idea that that was what I was, quote, going to do for the rest of my life and so on. So I do think it's important for people to understand that you, you can definitely make a difference and things you do make a difference. But that doesn't mean you have to know from the beginning exactly how what you're doing is going to make a difference and plan everything around what only what you can predict. Life does not work that way. Uh, and then the other thing that we jumped over a little bit is between law, between college and law school, I was in the Peace Corps for two years. Mm -hmm. And I didn't go into the Peace Corps in order to map out a pathway that would do first this, then that, then that, then that. And yet going into the Peace Corps, which some people would have seen as a detour from quote unquote, the real path or the career path and so on, was a hugely enriching and important part of my life, both personally and ultimately professionally. 
it even contributed to the writing of that paper on marriage and gay rights. And um, that's, again, an example of how, excuse me, it's not so much that you need to know every step in your path or that you have to have a plan for everything. But at each point, you should you should be trying to choose something that matters to you, that is going to be worth it to you, and and then have the the confidence that the next door will open, the next step will follow, et cetera. So now that doesn't mean you never have to do things you don't want to do, or that you don't occasionally suck it up and spend a year doing X or Y or Z because you're going to learn something or pay your dues or whatever. But in general, I think if you pursue what you want and and look for how you can make a difference and how you can contribute, you will find that even if the, the whole trajectory is not clear from the beginning. You know, there's setbacks. It must've been like, this is never going to happen. You know, how did you handle frustration? Not let it kind of, st- I mean, did you ever think I'm going to, I'm going to give up? <laughs> yeah. I never thought I was going to give up. I mean, in reality, I might have thought I'm annoyed and I can't stand this and this isn't, you know, this person's an idiot or whatever. But I I didn't really ever, quote, give up. Um, I always believed when it was something I really wanted and really set my uh, heart on and, and, and made a commitment to doing for myself or for others that we would prevail, that I could make it, that it would it would succeed, that others would rise, et cetera. Uh, now, partly that has to do also with selecting things where you have that confidence, but I, that's, that's how I approach life. I, I don't approach life from a, oh, it won't work. So why bother it? To me, it's much more, if this is the right thing, and if this is what I want, I'm going to, I'm going to choose to believe it can happen and then proceed accordingly. And I actually think that's a key element of success. I think having the belief that you can change things, the belief that something can happen, the belief that you will get something, the belief that others will improve, will rise, the belief that the way things are today is not the way they always have to be, is step one in getting the change you want. And a corollary to it is not just having that belief, but conveying that belief. You have to convey hopefulness to other people so that they are encouraged to join you. Instead of giving people permission for inaction, you want to give people permission and impetus to take action, to find power, to move in the right direction. So, you know, just, you know, I can't, over three decades, it's hard to encapsulate, but were there particular leapfrog points where you're like, we're really making progress? I'm just curious if there's any of those milestone moments in this three decades. Oh, well, there were tons of those. I mean, th- there was one turning point, as it were, after another, one building block. Another. And some of those were the intentional result of our work and the strategy that yielded building blocks of success upon which we could go to the next stage and the next stage, and which we could point to as proof that this is doable, we can win. Here's here, Despite setbacks and losses and defeats and delays, we are still on the path here. Look at this, look at this, look at this. So part, part of it was conveying that very consciously over and over and over. But we had you know, many breakthrough moments or many moments of leaping forward uh, along with, as I said, many losses and many defeats. But I tend to focus on the winning. You know, In one of the darkest moments of our movement, of our cause, our campaign to win marriage, we had in one year lost... 13 ballot measures had been attacked by 
George W. Bush and the Republican Party, by the Pope, by uh, by pundits and others who said we were going too far too fast, we were risking everything, et cetera, et cetera. And, and as I said, we lost 13 ballot measures and um, had this defeat and had, you know, had failed to move forward from where we were. And I wrote a, I gave a speech and wrote it up and made a point of delivering it on record so that it wouldn't just look like I was rationalizing afterwards. I delivered it before election day in order that I could be heard to say that uh, what the, the title of the speech was marriage equality and lessons for the scary work of winning. And I talked about how change activism is scary. Most of the time, it seems like you're losing or there's obstacles or people don't want to go with you or you do have setbacks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like it is when you wrap it in the golden glow of inevitability in the history books. You know, Martin Luther King gave a speech and then boom. Yeah, but that's not what it felt like at the time. So I gave this speech talking about the lessons for the scary work of winning. And people can Google it uh, with my name. I won't give you all the lessons, but, you know, lesson one was wins trump losses. Now, today I might use a different verb, but wins outweigh losses. And what I meant by that was you're always going to have losses, as I described, we did too. But if you do your work and you get those wins, the power of what you've won gives you what you need to then come back and overcome the next loss and the next loss. So I argue that any year in which we lost 13 ballot measures, as we did in, in 2004, but also one marriage in the one case we won that year in Massachusetts, opening the door to same-sex couples getting married for the first time, is a winning year. Because once couples begin getting married and people see those couples married and see that nothing bad happens, it will give us so much more to work with as we persuade people and keep working our strategy, despite the 13 barriers that had been uh, painfully erected. So that was an example of how to think about the inevitability of ups and downs and difficulties and challenges, wins trump losses. And the second lesson in that speech was that therefore you want to win, you know, you want to try to win. So you should have a good strategy and you should build a good team and you should have leadership and you should do the things that are necessary for winning. But you can't always win. Sometimes you're fighting on the enemy's timetable or the enemy's terrain, or you haven't done your own preparation well, or you haven't learned the lessons you need to learn in order to prevail at that given moment, and you lose. And so lesson two was that while you do want to win, you can't always win. But you can always fight. You can always engage so as to at least lose forward. That if you do the things you need to do, you may not prevail in the moment, but you come out with the assets, the progress, the awakened consciousness that will give you what you need in order to regroup and keep driving your strategy for the next round and the next round and the next round. So that, for example, in those 13 ballot measures, we couldn't win them. We didn't get to 51% in any of those states, but we bumped support in those states from let's say 30% to 40% or 43 to 45. We got many more allies. We got a lot of other people who thought we were gonna win and didn't do enough to get out of their complacency and join the fight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the, the ways in which 
the, the difficult work, the scary work of winning unfolds. And this is what I laid out for people and kept preaching and, of course, had to, had to also believe and, and follow myself. Lose forward. That is so fabulous. And your belief, it's just there's an undeniability about it. And I just love how you are the change you want to see in the world. And for um, you know, folks who are out there, you know, thinking that maybe it's lonely or I'm the only one. I'm I'm, you know, I, I imagine also, you know, you you turn these mistakes around, but maybe just clarify some things you wish you could have done differently to help people appreciate some of the things that in hindsight. You know, I wish I had known this and, and perhaps there are learnings that others can be uh, can find useful going forward. Well, certainly one of the mistakes we made, and I don't know if mistake is exactly the right word because we, we, we wanted to do better, but we, we just were not able to do better. One of the missed opportunities was to get in earlier and more and repeat more often the sort of soft sell persuasion, the engagement with people, the conversations about why marriage matters, who gay people are, what their values are, before the political attacks came, before they were forced to vote, before there was a court case you know, ready for its conclusion. The, had we been able to get more people, more support, more money, more activity, more conversations beforehand, we would have raised the, the threshold for where we were, and we would have been able to withstand some of the attacks that we, we also knew were coming. So it's not so much that we didn't know that in, in intellectually, but we didn't always prioritize it. Not everybody we were working with prioritized it as well. Uh, sometimes people, understandably, would set their eyes on what you might think of as transactional change, which is what can I get today? You know, What can we achieve right now? What will the powers that be give us? As opposed to thinking in terms of transformational change, which is shaped by the idea that, first of all, here's what I want. Here's the goal. Here's where we're going. And working back from that to how are we going to get there? And lots of people operate in a transactional way, as opposed to what I think of as the transformational uh, approach that we follow. Now, in a transformational approach where you're, where you're setting your eyes on a big goal, you still have to work by increments. You still have to rack up, as I said earlier, building blocks of success. You don't go from zero to 100. But with your eyes on the prize of 100, you can summon people to that vision. And that brings in more resources, more allies, more voters, more people who will then help you on building block A, B, C, D, E, F, all of which then pile up and give more people more confidence and so on. So there's an interplay between the, the, the hopefulness and the strategy and the clarity that you bring to your goal, uh, all of which can help inspire people to come in. And then the, the painstaking work of turning that into building blocks of success, elements of victory, elements of persuasion, and keep going, keep going, keep going. And that's how, you know, that's how you, and that sounds either simplistic or very, very hard to people. And the reality is it's very, very doable. That is how change happens. But it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen without mistakes. And it doesn't happen without stumbles. Uh, my general mantra on that is don't dwell on the problem. Focus on the pathway. You know, So it's like don't spend all your time cataloging how bad everything is. Talk more about here's how we're going to get to where we want to go and then go. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's cohesive. It's integrity of how you shift hearts and minds and then do the work. I have a question about how over the course of this, you 
it just seems like it can get very personal and people can be mean and do mean things and nice things. And was that ever a struggle for you to not take things personally? Because you're a very compassionate person, you know? And so uh, just talk to us how you, you know, kind of put some armor on, I suppose, sometimes. And, you know, how do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah, it it was difficult. You know, there's there was the whole world at one time, quote unquote, that was against us, you know, which, of course, isn't exactly true, but it's how it felt. Um but moving those people, dealing with that problem, dealing with the, you know, the hardcore opponents and the people who weren't with us, which was the vast majority when I started, was never the thing that got to me. That was that was the work. That was what we were in it to do. What did get to me was the resistance, timidity, disagreements, nitpicking, turf with the people closest to me, my own people. And of course, that's very typical. Uh, we all get, you know, it's our family that pushes our buttons, not strangers, you know, et cetera. So um, yes, I had to work hard to stifle some of my immediate impulses of annoyance or anger or frustration and so on, and try to always take the high road. And, you know, I wasn't, I was no saint and wasn't perfect, but in general in work, I did take the high road and didn't slam the door, even on people that disagreed with me. Uh, I tried to preserve the relationship, even with people that were frustrating me, and by and large succeeded. And there, and when people started coming around, which by the way, not everybody did, but yeah. but enough did. Uh, we, even though we had been fighting and disagreeing before, we were able to because we hadn't slammed the door on each other. Uh, we're able to then join forces or at least parallel play or, and yeah. move forward. And I also, you know, something you said before we actually started taping, you said sometimes the world is so frustrating and scary that you even maybe read a little less or watch a little less TV than you maybe should. Uh, well, I'm I'm actually the same way. And I think of it as, I mean, you know, we do need to know what's going on. We do need to be informed. We need to know what our opponents are doing, but we don't need to wallow in it. So I consciously didn't. I, you know, you could call it compartmentalizing, et cetera. I feel like I always knew what was happening and knew what people were saying and knew what they were thinking, what they were going to do and so on. But I didn't spend all my time thinking about that either. I went for the ones that I could get. You know, I used to say, for every gay person that disagrees with me, there are 10 non-gay people out there to get. So why not go out and get the ones you can get? And of course, it was never an either or and so on. But that was the general attitude I tried to take. And even though I can be cranky and irritable in my own personal life and pers personality, professionally, I was actually pretty good at always projecting hopefulness and trust that you will do better. Even though you don't agree with me now, you're saying such and such, I think you'll get there, uh, which may have been annoying, but that was the attitude I tended to take rather than the hell with you and you're terrible, you know? That's just fabulous. Just take us through the emotions when you won. So it was obviously extremely joyous. People can actually watch it live because there was a documentary that captured me and my team in our headquarters as we were counting down for the decision. So the documentary is called The Freedom to Marry, and it's available on various platforms and so on. Yeah. Um, and by the time we won in 2015, we believed we were going to win. We had we had believed we'd done everything we could do. We'd seen the momentum. We really believed, but you never know. And our mantra during those days was, it's not done until it's done. We kept working 110% every day, banging things out, having our teams with their assignments and so on. But gathered in that conference room 
again, because, you know, we we had gathered, I think it was eight times on possible Supreme Court decision days. And finally, on the eighth day, which was June 26, 2015, we were gathered yet again and we're doing it again. And um, <laughs> everybody had their their devices, laptops, phones, et cetera. And even though I have a ha had a, a pretty young team of digital hotshots and so on, I was actually the first one to see it on my phone. And I said, the Supreme Court uh, strikes down, blah, blah, blah. And I cited my friend Chris Geidner, a reporter. And then as soon as I said it, I was nervous because, you know, when I say it, everyone's going to take it very, very seriously. And I was like, what if I'm not right? What if this is not correct? And then everybody started getting us up. So we all cheered. We all were, of course, exuberant. We sat back just in our seats and we're like, oh, wow. You know, just the immensity of it. Because this was the eighth time we had gathered on this occasion, we had remembered at this time to, to bring champagne. So we actually had champagne. We quickly passed it around, toasted it. And then everybody ran off to their battle stations, um, right. you know, to push it out, to talk to people, talk to reporters, talk to activists, counsel couples, et cetera. And my job as the only lawyer at Freedom to Marry was to go and actually read the decision. So I went to my office, pulled it up on my screen. And as I was reading it, and again, people can see this on film, um, I found myself crying. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea that I was going to cry. You know, it just, that was not at all the, the, the reaction I expected. And part of what I thought I was crying about was as I was reading it, it just brought memory after memory after memory of these 32 years of battling. You know, I remembered an argument with somebody about this. I remembered uh, the work we did that led to that, et cetera, et cetera, as the opinion was unfolding. And I was also really struck at how much the reasoning of the decision reflected the argument that I had put forward in that law school paper 32 years earlier. And again, I wasn't the first one to come up with it, but it was the the right answer. We just had to get the rest of the court and the country to see it, which we had now succeeded in doing. So on that day, I thought I was crying because of all of what I just said. Th that day happened to be Friday of Gay Pride weekend. So the whole rest of the weekend was this, you know, bacchanalia of celebration and pleasure and happiness and congratulations. And not just from by gay people, but non-gay people were happy. Everybody was happy, happy. it seemed, you know, because... This ocean of joy had swept the country. The government did something right. The system worked. Love won, in our phrase, et cetera, et cetera. And so we spent the whole weekend immersed in that. And it was only on Sunday, the Gay Pride Day, two days after it, that it occurred to me that part of the reason I had been crying was you know, everything I just said. But the other part was just the sheer relief that we were not going to have to keep going. I had always believed we would win. I truly did. And I had also believed that if we had lost, we would have kept working our same strategy and it would have won, just not yet. I really believed that. But what a, what a joy not to have to. Um, and, and then it occurred to me, wow, the fact that it took me two days to even realize that as a human being, I might feel a sense of relief shows how, in your word, how hardened part of me had had to be during those years of work. And like, you know, I never felt it that way. I never felt it to be a burden. I right. never felt myself cut off from life or anything like that. But there was a cost to the activism, or at least a price for the activism, which was to be tough 
and strong and to keep going. And uh, it took me two days to appreciate that I too had had that very human uh, need as an activist. Yeah, thank you for bringing out that human side. I'm just I'm wowed. Uh, Evan, share with listeners, you know, w- some of what you're doing now. I mean, it's really, it's moving how you're helping people all around the globe. Yeah, so Freedom to Marry, of course, shut down as we had promised we would upon mm-hmm. winning. And, uh, you know, the, the movement continues, the, the cause of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people and the needs and the work and the attacks that are still there remain very, very urgent. But the campaign to win the freedom to marry had succeeded. And, and as we had said we would, we closed down and we distributed some of the leftover money and the assets and, and many of my team and others went to different organizations. And that work continues. What I am mostly doing is a mix of teaching. I teach uh, law and social change. I've taught at Georgetown Law and currently I'm teaching at Yale. And I do guest teaching at a variety of universities around the country. And I also uh, have a, an affiliation with the world's largest law firm where I have my office. And so I do a little bit with them and they, they support some of my pro bono work out in the world. That, that firm is called Denton's. And uh, what I mostly do, though, is advise and assist other causes, other movements, other organizations in their urgent work beyond LGBT, but also including LGBT work. And so part of that is that with a team of some of my former Freedom to Marry associates, we go around the world coaching and, and, and assisting efforts in other countries to win marriage for same-sex couples, non-discrimination, decriminalization, human rights, women's rights, et cetera. And we operate under the banner of Freedom to Marry Global, but we don't even have an organization. We're just a team of people who've worked together for many years, who have some credibility and some track records. So we're able to raise money and support our ability to give this advice to other causes in other countries. I just got back from uh, Asia where we pulled together our our partners on the ground leading the fight in 12 countries. Uh, We did a similar gathering in Colombia about a month and a half ago with our regional partners there. So I'm not in charge of any of that anymore. I'm just assisting and helping and uh, trying to see more progress and to share the lessons. And and then, you know, the final thing I do is really, as a, as we're doing today, share these elements of success with others to really show people you can make a difference. There is a way. There are things you can do. There are lessons from history, from experience, and they're not rocket science. They are the basics of how to achieve change. You're just a miracle. I am so, um, I'm in awe. Um, sadly, we have to wrap I, um, so just a few more questions. One is, you know, to be able to be this for the world to me takes an immense sense of who one is and that journey to get to getting to know ourselves, who we really are is a lifetime's one because we're a new person every day, but there's a notion of really doing the work. So at this moment, if you step back three words or phrases, Evan, that you think describe you, the essence of you, what comes to mind? Three words. It's funny. I can usually I can describe how we won in three words. That's one of my speeches. I talk about hope, clarity, and tenacity. If I had to do three words for myself, though, I would say um, hopeful, lucky, and um, determined. Yeah, and you can do that quiet, and you can do that loud. 
Um, you talked a lot, and you, I imagine you you talk a lot about this, so it's not unusual for you. But I'm curious as you step back and hear yourself, is there a top takeaway from listening from yourself of your journey? Yeah, believe it. You can make a change. Believe that you can do it, and go out and find the way to do it. And don't doubt yourself. Don't doubt others. Don't don't be told by others you you that this is impossible or you can't do it. And even if it's not immediately attainable today, find a, a step of value toward what you want, and hopefully the next door will open, or the next person will join you. Yeah. Evan, what was it like for you to share your journey with us today? Uh, no, I, I enjoyed it. I'm more comfortable talking about the elements of change and the history and the grand philosophy and so on than I am, of course, talking about my myself. I don't, I don't pretend to be some perfect role model of good behavior or success or whatever. Uh, you know, I feel like I was lucky. I did some things well. I did other things that I was just lucky to have the chance to do and so on. So it's not, I don't always feel like it's so much about me, but it's at least I do get to embody the fact that this can happen. Your humility is with you, my friend. And I think you're blushing. You're a oh, wow. And uh, taking the high road, the way you just stand for what's possible and for sure the hope, clarity, and tenacity, it's no surprise um, that you forged to success and are helping so many around the world. So I just want to appreciate you, Evan, for being part of the solution. We need more of you in this world. Uh, you've been so generous with your own journey and um, your journey in life really helps all of us be safe, seen and heard and our true and very best selves. If I can ever be helpful in any little way, my friend, you know how to reach me. I'm here for well, you. Well, thank you. I, I have to end by saying there's, there's a lot more to do, including defending our democracy here in the US and around the world. We all need to get engaged. This is a crucial moment in history. We all can make a difference. And we have to because without democracy, without standing up for democracy, all the other work and activism becomes much, much, much harder. And so whether whatever cause you most care about, be it women's rights or gay rights or animal rights or the environment or healthcare, all of those things are important, all worth working on. But we have to we have to engage people in voting and democracy and reform to make sure that we can all keep working for a better world. Yeah, thanks, Evan, for inspiring us to make a better world together. Um, you take good care, my friend. Have a great holiday. Thank season. you. You too. Okay. Ciao, ciao. Bye, bye. Oh, folks, this is crazy. Um, so I'm going to wrap with our thought for the week uh, from the renowned mindfulness teacher, Shinzen Young, untangle and be free. And um, in the new year, we're going to launch the next generation of the Say It Skillfully podcast. Stay tuned for that. My gratitude to Voice America for four amazing years and to the creativity and relentless effort of my right arm, Eric Patton, who is pivotal to say it skillfully, and our ability to help people all around the world authentically say what needs to be said so we're all understood. And that's a wrap, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Evan's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear 
more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 